Welcome to Writing Black Joy Season 2. I am Sophia Robinson and I'm a writing coach and an editor and a story listener as well as the producer of Writing Black Joy, a virtual space that celebrates, centers and promotes the voices of Black writers and storytellers with joyful and uplifting stories. Here, you'll find conversations with some of my favorite Black writers and storytellers, learn more about their projects and the joy they're bringing into the world, hear more about their creative process, and find inspiration for your own creative ventures, as well as tips and strategies for writing poetry, blogs, creative nonfiction, fiction, plays, and so much more from all types of writers, as well as a sneak peek into the writing life. You can even find your next favorite writer, book, poem, play, or blog. And if you are a Black writer who is looking for a coach or an editor to help you bring your joyful story into the world, then click on my website below to find out how to work with me. In the meantime, let's go to today's guest. Today's guest is Kara Bolton, an award-winning producer and director, as well as a writer. She is the CEO and founder of Woodbine Films, which specializes in first-person narrative nonfiction that examines the meaning of community, connection, and identity in the Black community. Her directorial debut, Return of the Black Madonna, is currently in production. The documentary traces her epic quest to learn to swim, dive, and map sunken slave ships with Black marine archaeologists. She's also working on a book called Water in My Bones, and we will be discussing both of these projects today. Kara and I talk about her commitment to Black joy after a long career in diversity and equity work, transmuting pain and trauma into joy, the process of making a documentary and holding multiple roles in that process, and the research process for making the documentary. We also talked about the importance of endurance during the filmmaking process. In addition, we also discussed women's health and Kara's experience of fibroids and the significance of the high prevalence of fibroids in Black women, learning how to swim, fear of open water and epigenetics, and so much more. This conversation went to so many places and is a really important testimony to how we can cultivate joy in our lives, even against a backdrop of pain or trauma. I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. This conversation contains details about the transatlantic slave trade and female health issues. So if you have little ones around, you might want to use headphones. Now, on to today's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Writing Black Joy. Uh, I'm really excited today because I have a guest with me, Kara Bolton, and we are going to be talking all about her projects that she's working on uh, and the many other things. We were just having a bit of a chat before I hit record and so much to get started on um, that I just thought we better hit record and get started. So uh, <laughs> to anybody who might have wandered onto this page, this is Writing Black Joy. It is a series where I am promoting and celebrating Black writers, Black storytellers, with their joyful and uplifting stories. One thing Kara is going to talk about today is transmuting trauma and pain into joy. And I think that's so important. It is important for us to have, you know, joyful stories, but it's also important for us to find ways to transmute the stories that we have that are not so joyful into joy for us, for, you know, our ancestors, for our, the next generation. So we're going to be talking a bit about that as well. 
And that is what this space is all about. It's all about Black joy, Black storytellers telling those stories. Today, I have Kara Bolton with me, and I'm going to just tell you a little bit about her before we jump, dive into our conversation. Kara Bolton is an award-winning producer and director. She is also the CEO and founder of Woodbine Films, which specializes in first-person narrative nonfiction that examines the meaning of community, connection, and identity in the Black community. Her directorial debut, Return of the Black Madonna, is currently in production. The documentary traces her epic quest to learn to swim, dive, and map sunken slave ships with Black marine archaeologists. Kara produced and starred in Detroit Rising, How the Motor City Becomes a Restorative City. That was in 2020. And this five-part docuseries follows Kara as she witnessed the restorative practices transform nearly every sector of the city during a time of racial reckoning. The series was an official selection of the San Francisco Independent Short Film Festival called Illuminating by the Mercury News, and it won Best Web Series in 2020 at the Cyrus International Film Festival. So I'm really excited to have Kara with us to be talking all about her projects. And first of all, Kara, I'd love you to tell us a little bit about your current project, which is Return of the Black Madonna, and what inspired you to create it. Well, um, I have been gifted with the pre- with the presence of my ancestors since I was a very little girl, since I was about nine years old. And they would sometimes come visit me and uh, they were sort of a comfort during times of trouble at school or at home. Um, I was, you know, I was kind of freaked out at first, but I, I became um, more calm with them. And it wasn't, they didn't visit quite a lot, but I have had an interest in slave narratives, um, an interest in where we came from. I mean, I'm, I'm 48 years old. And so Roots, uh, the, the movie, the miniseries Roots came out about three years after I was born. And it was a big thing in the United States. And I'd always been interested in those topics And in 2016, um, after the election, I was in a yoga class in Mexico and I started to get these horrible visions of slave ships, of bodies rocking, of of splintered wood, sharks in the water, blood in the water. And I was, and I woke up and I was just sort of frightened. I mean, everybody else is in Shavasana and they're peaceful and I have the chills. And later I went to tell Michael, my yoga instructor, what happened? And he said, sister, you got some work to do. Mm. So um, about three years after that, I was in Detroit uh, at the African-American Museum and I was on assignment uh, for Detroit Rising actually, and went through their exhibits. Um, And one of the exhibits they have is uh, called And Still We Rise. And it basically walks visitors from a fictional West African village to Detroit. And as part of that, of course, it was the Middle Passage and there was a boat and it was very much like the vision that I had in 2016. Um, There were bodies or meaning there were mannequins packed against each other and the audio coming from the speakers was um, moans and grunts um, of the people who were in uh, in the home. And I went down to my knees and I just started crying because I felt them. 
And so I, um, I got myself together because I didn't want people to see me crying <laughs> in, a, in a public place. And I moved on. And then later that year, um, I was learning how to swim. And every time my instructor told me to go underwater, I kept seeing the, the boats again. It was the same visions. And then finally, after the fourth or fifth time this happened, I came up and I said, I know what I have to do. I have to, I have to map sunken slave ships. I have to go to where they are. They're calling me to remember them and to remember their stories. And so um, from there, from 2019 to today, I've been working on this project. Mm. And I, that, that is so incredible to me. Um, I, I have a question, which is not necessarily related to the project, but I'm curious. Uh, you, I know you said when you were little, you felt the presence of the ancestors. How did you tell anyone and how did they respond? Because I, you know, I've met a few people who've had those experiences and some of them have gotten sort of like maybe positive responses and others, especially in a very Christian sort of um, upbringing, were kind of almost punished for that. So I'm curious what type of response you got uh, from that. Well, it started happening when I was given a dress and a bonnet that I think mm -hmm. belonged to my grandmother who had passed away at that mm -hmm. point. And um, it felt like a chill followed by a calm. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't tell anyone and I sort of ah. treated it like an imaginary playmate um, because inside I knew that, okay, something about this is not normal and if I tell people they're going to think I'm crazy they're going to punish mm -hmm. me so I basically kept it to myself it actually I haven't talked about it at all until um, I started talking about this project um, Return of the Black Madonna yeah and I wonder how many people because like I said I've met a few people who said that they have, they've had those experiences and it just makes me wonder how many people experience it and as you, they don't say anything because they know that it's not, you know, they maybe feel instinctively that it might not be a safe thing to, to talk about. So yeah, I'm really glad that you are able to really speak out about that. As you know, this, this project is about stories by Black storytellers. Uh, for season one, it was mostly writers, but season two, I wanted to include films, documentaries, you know, all the different ways that the stories and the ideas are out in the world. Why is it really important for you to tell this story and also for the joyful stories from Black storytellers to be out in the world? Well, a couple of reasons. For me, um, I have spent most of my life working for social justice, particularly for Black women and girls in some kind of way. And I hit the wall in 2020 um, when George Floyd's murder happened. And at that time, all of my efforts had been outward, like trying to change white people, like trying yes. to get them to be de decent human beings and recognize that we're all human and that we all are entitled to freedom and liberty and all of the things that America is supposed to stand for. Mm -hmm. And when George Floyd's murder happened, I thought these people could give a flip about my freedom, Black people's freedom, like they don't care. They honestly do not care because if they cared, they would do something. I mean, and do something more than read a book, feel bad, perform on social media. So I'm like, I'm done. 
I am done. The only thing that I can do is excavate, nourish, and cultivate Black joy. That is the only answer. And so, you know, things happen around me, you know, things happen in the United States. And I just, there are warriors who are doing that work. That is not my task. My task is Black joy because in Black joy, we find peace. We find happiness, we find solitude, we find stillness, we find future. Yeah. And that's and I, important. Yeah. And I, I agree. It's really important. And I love that distinction because uh, I remember when I first started this project, I was talking to um, someone. She's not, not from, from the U.S. She's uh, Middle Eastern. And she and I were t- chatting just about business online. And when I told her about the project, she was like, oh, is that like a DEI project? And I was like, no, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's for me, as you said, like I, I, for me, if I think about what, what I'm here to do, it is here to have these, these you know, highlight the, the stories of Black joy. I think it will benefit the world. I believe it benefits the world. I, you know, but, but I'll also, I'm not here for the world. Like I'm here for not, that's not sounds terrible, but not, not say I'm not here for the world. I am, but also I know my priority is to put these stories out there for young people because I think the representation is so important. So I love that sort of distinction that you made as well. I want to talk a little bit about your uh, journey of learning to swim. Uh, we were talking a bit about this before we hit record because I'm in Barbados. I grew up here. I've lived other places, England, Tanzania, but I've always, you know, wanted to come back here. And so I returned here about 10 years ago. And Barbados is a small island, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I learned to swim when I was growing up, but I have a lot of friends even now, and I'm also in my 40s, who can't swim, don't swim, have a lot of fear of swimming, of the sea. We have sayings here about the sea, like the sea has no back door, and a lot of fearfulness when it comes to the sea even though it's a small island surrounded by the sea and mm-hmm. um and I I guess I always wondered about that because I learned to, to swim when I was younger it I didn't have that fear but I've I've met so many people of all ages who do um and I I I know that it's a common fear also among Um, African-Americans, Black Americans in the U.S. So I'm curious uh, about your own journey with learning to swim and also what you found in your research about this fear of the sea. Sure. Um, Well, um, in West Africa, where many Black Americans are from, um, my people are from Sierra Leone. I'm from from the Mende people, not the Monday people. I'm from the Mende people in Sierra Leone. And um, so in many West African communities, they were actually great swimmers. Um, they were great fishermen. They had uh, lots of water ceremonies. For example, in the Mende people where I'm from, they believe that the water spirit protects you. And for them, the water spirit is in the lakes and the rivers. I believe that once um, the trading of humans happened and that humans became cargo, that for many um, Black people in the U.S. and I'm going to dare to say the Caribbean and South America. I imagine that, so. Yeah, that the water became, it was no longer a friend. It was a threat because there were these stories about people taking being taken across the water and what was done to them. 
And I think that um, like the stories of Mami Wata and some of the other, like the, the other ocean deities come from that experience. And then in the United States, um, the torture didn't end because if you think about it, they were tortured on the slave, on the slave ships. And so um, when, when they got to the United States, and again, I, I want to speak to this experience because that's what I know of, um, they were forbidden to swim uh, because white people thought that if, if black people swam, that they could swim to their freedom. Um, they were drowned uh, in, as a form of punishment. So um, I believe that many Black Af uh, Americans have a fear of swimming in open water because it is um, an epigenetic response. Therefore, it, it's inherited DNA, it's inherited trauma through our DNA. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I believe that that, so it's not like we don't want to get our hair wet or all of these other excuses that people come up with. I think it is a response to a trauma that our ancestors experienced. Mm. And so I believe that if I learn how to swim specifically, that I will be able to break that cycle, even though I cannot have children, at least I've broken the chain for my ancestors of not knowing how to swim. Cause I don't think I have any immediate ancestors that know how to swim. Mm -hmm. So um, I have been learning how to swim for about two years. It's been mm -hmm. off and on because of COVID yeah, and of because of the availability of being able to swim. I mean, and there's a pool literally in my front yard, but it's not always clean. And, and um, I've gone through a number of swim instructors. Um, and the most difficult part is putting my face in the water. Mm. I don't know if you've experienced that or if other people experience I that. I hate putting my face in the water. And I am a comfortable swimmer. And I, I hate it to this day. I still hate it. Um, and I also hate, like, my sister taught me a few years ago to lay float. There's something mm -hmm. about having my ears in the water. Yes, it yes. Actually, freaks me out. Yeah. <laughs> right. And yes. as I said, I can swim. So it's not even it's not even due to a fear of being able to 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 survive, but like yes. something about the water in my face and in my ear, it actually freaks me out. So no, yes. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. So when we do the back float, for example, with my swim instructor, it's the hardest part for me to do because it's really trusting and then having my ears in the water it's just I I can't relax and I often have to count to give my mind something mm. to do other than panic yeah oh I cannot relax at all like it's so funny because that is the thing that they teach you to do like if you're tired even when you're learning to swim they're like if you're tired you turn over you lay float I I panic I actually like I said my mm -hmm. sister's uh, and I want to say she taught me recently I'm talking about within the last maybe five years yeah. <laughs> she taught me how to do it and it's still not comfortable for me that 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 trust issue for sure of like trusting you know and at the end of the day as I tell people I have yeah. flotation devices up here so I'm probably gonna <laughs> float anyway right but like yeah yes. it's really uncomfortable so I never even thought about that so thank you for uh for sharing that experience mm -hmm. um what I know you talk about diving for the sunken slave ships on that I know that swimming and diving are like polar opposites pretty much because obviously with diving, it's a different skill set, basically. Mm -hmm. um, have you been learning to just to swim or have you been learning to dive as well? So um, I am, uh, the furthest I've gotten so far is snorkeling and I actually really enjoyed it. Of course, I had a complete face mask on, so yeah. there was no water touching my face. 
Um, and it was delightful to see the, the, the sea life, the fish. And, but of course, if I'm swimming and there's a catfish or whatever near me, I freak out. So it yeah. is, it's still a learning process for sure. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Is there, cause I've, I've heard you talking about this before on a previous podcast episode. Uh, but I, I wanted to, to ask again, is there a team that you're going to be going with when you go down to map this? I want to know a bit more about that whole process. Cause I'm sure. Yeah. I'm curious about it. My friend Lee sent me a, a short documentary by national geographic and it featured a group called divers with purpose. And they are mostly black uh, marine archeology span group. They believe, believe in marine um, preservation um, and so they, they have several programs and I called them and asked them if I might be able to, to dive with them someday. And so they said, yes, I have to complete 30 dives and I have to get my, my certificate and I have to work on my buoyancy. And then they have a program that they do once a year where they teach you sort of the mechanics of, of marine archaeology, mm-hmm. as well as the mapping process. So okay. I am nowhere near that yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. You'll get there. Um, and that actually brings me on to my question about the documentary itself, because I've always like, I've always said like making a documentary is something I would do. I love documentaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've always been fascinated by the process. And it sounds to me like this is, this is like something that will take a while because obviously you're now learning to swim, then you, you're learning to dive. Are you, are you, do you take recordings even now? Is it something where you're going to be taking recordings all through this process? And then that's something that's going to be amalgamated into the documentary. How, how does that process work? Because obviously you've done it before. Yeah. So I have a director of photography who comes with me when I do major shoots. So mm, okay. um, we shot in June of this year, and that was a lot of the footage of me learning to swim. And then when I'm in the diving process, he'll come, my, my crew will come again. And so there are milestones where my, my crew will come. And then I also have someone here, uh, Juan Carlos, who does, um, he shoots with a GoPro. So if it's ah. um, that way, we don't miss, um, we don't miss an important moment. So like the moment where um, I learned to dive for the first time, you know, he'll be there. Um, the moment where maybe I really swim by myself for a long periods of time, he'll be there for that. So that's how we're doing it for now, because it's, it's expensive to have a crew come, you know, every time. Yeah, of course. And I guess the reality of it is that you kind of don't necessarily know when those moments are going to occur, right? It's not like you can yeah. preempt like, oh, well, today I'm going to be doing this thing. It, it might be something that happens kind of like organically. And then it's mm-hmm. like, oh, I've done it now. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I love the idea of having that GoPro footage um, as well. So that's really great. We'll talk a bit more about that as we go on. But um, I'd love to know, is there a quote either from your work or from someone that you have heard that you find inspiring? Well, it's kind of basic, but um, I, I, I read the Bible um, every day and I read a verse and um, I read it usually in the mornings. And so um, my joy verse comes from Proverbs 17, 22, and it just says a joyful heart is good medicine. Oh, I love that. Hmm, that's a great one. And, yes. And so, you know, when we live with joy, it's good medicine. It doesn't mean that, you know, we need to avoid the pharmaceutical industry, but you know, it helps. Yeah, definitely. 
uh, yeah, I think it, it's it definitely uh, combined with any rural medicine that you're taking for sure. So uh, yeah. it, you can't go wrong with that. So what type of research are you doing for the, I know also you're writing a book as well, Water in My Bones. Uh, I didn't mention it in the bio, but I do know that you're, you're going to be writing that alongside this mm -hmm. process. What sort of research are you finding that you need to do for both of these projects? I've been working on research for the past four years for this um, for these projects, both off and on. And so it's come into a couple of categories. So one is the research about uh, the slave ships. And it often in the middle passage often gets ignored. I mean, they talk about the, the highlights, so to speak, about the torture that happened, the conditions that were in the boat on the boats. But you know, there's so much more that happened there. Um, there were a sense of communities that were developed on the boats. For mm -hmm. example, um, many people didn't speak the same languages. And so they used their bodies rocking against the ship as a form of rhythm, as a form of what we would call now Morse code um, nice. to telegraph messages. And I, and I realized also that the word ship means different things, especially in the Caribbean as I've in my research and South America. The other thing, the other area of research is, of course, my family history. Um, I've done some DNA testing that linked me to um, the Mende people in Sierra Leone and um, just trying to go back and, and find my family. Um, I'm the last of a particular line. Um, I'm an only child. I don't have children. I can't have children. Um, and my... Um, and so my father was an only child. My uncle passed away. He had one son. And so I'm it <laughs> um, for this particular line. So I want to find out who my family was. And then there's another part about um, the trade winds. So for example, we know that many of the hurricanes that happen in the Atlantic Ocean start from an easterly wind on the coast of um, the east coast of Africa, and it travels across the continent. So I find that fascinating. And then the final point is about fibroids and how I believe that fibroids are a symptom of inherited trauma uh, among Black women, particularly who's, who are descended from um, captive Africans. Yeah. And we were talking about that as well before we hit record, because I, I have fibroids as well. Um, and I know so many people who do. And that was just so interesting to me because it, you know, I did learn when I started to, when I, you know, discovered that I had them and I started to do the research, I did learn it is a lot more common in Black women than it is in other, in terms of prevalence. Uh, yes. And so I was always curious about that. So I, I'm... Yeah, that's something that I hadn't really considered. But, you know, I, I've always been fascinated by epigenetics and how things are passed on through that genetic code in terms of the code is changed through the environment, through trauma, through whatever is happening. Um, and then that is passed on sort of to the next generation and the next. So that sounds, that's something that, you know, I can definitely understand. And I probably will... Um, <laughs> like you, I'll do a bit more research, but I'm looking forward to reading your book on that as well. So the, uh, we can discuss that. So tell me a bit more about what you found out about the fibroids. I'm curious. Sure. So part of the, the, the film 
we find out that I have um, very large fibroids. In fact, one of them is 25 centimeters. And I have to have an, it's, the fibroid is actually larger than my uterus. And uh, the doctor says, yes. And the doctor says that if I don't have surgery, I will die. Um, and, um, and actually I did have an emergency hysterectomy in July of 2021. And I wanted to know more about fibroids. As you said, um, black women have fibroids. Um, we have them more often than other women. Our fibroids are larger. They tend to um, be more fibroids and we get them at younger ages. And so with that, I'm like, well, why are we getting fibroids? Like what is going on? And um, there isn't a lot of medical research about the source of fibroids. However, there is a black female researcher from, uh, I wanna say she's from Boston University. I'm hoping to interview her next month who has made um, a link between childhood trauma and fibroids. And um, she said that there is actually more work done by the Black Women's Health Initiative in the United States that um, has more research about Black women and fibroids. And there were bills introduced, legislation introduced in both chambers of the U.S. Congress to have more resources devoted toward studying fibroids among Black women and treatment. So it's definitely something that we need to pay attention to because, um, you know, my wound was taken. Um, I, I don't have a uterus, fallopian tubes, ovaries, nothing. It's all a hollow space there. And often um, for Black women, our pain gets ignored. Um, if we're lucky, they'll give us medication, but they just say, oh, well, it'll be okay. Or it's, you know, everybody gets fibroids. Yeah, that's normal. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind normal. Of like minimize it. Yeah. Meanwhile, you have a crime scene happening every month. You know, it's just so horrible. And, um, and, and then, and the doctors don't act until it's too late. And actually hysterectomy is the most recommended treatment for black women, um, because it gets so bad and they're literally taking our wounds, they're taking our futures. And that's something we really need to talk about. Yeah. And I think that is very important. You know, I, I find, especially about any women's issues within, within the medical industry, Black women in particular, is that it is, it is definitely minimized. So I have, I've studied healthcare. I'm a healthcare professional. That's my secret day job. I don't really talk about it much. But I always remember thinking about the fact that so many of the studies, so much of the medical studies and how, med, uh, you know, how research is done, is kind of predicated on issues that are common, i.e., they have to include men, <laughs> right? Yes. So a lot of a lot of it is kind of like based on these white men, <laughs> for lack of yes. a better word. Like I don't know how else to describe it. And so I think a lot of women's issues in general, and particularly Black women's issues, not much seems to be known about them, or like you said, not much in terms of the cause. Um, medicine to me is more about treatment than it is about cause in general. Um, and so it's kind of almost like, oh, well, no, we don't know what causes them, but what are we going to do about it now? And as you said, if, if it gets picked up late, then quite often there's not really much else that you can do about it. So I definitely that's something that we need to be learning more about. And I look forward to hearing um, when you speak to the, the doctor about 
her own research and what other research is being done because I think here in Barbados, and this is something that I say all the time, like we need to be doing our own research here as well. And so I think hearing that uh, sort of aspect of things hopefully will encourage us to be doing some of our own research here. So I uh, really appreciate your, uh, your sort of digging into that and sharing your own experiences because it's such a personal, <laughs> you know, and I think that's the other thing. I think quite often, even women's issues, there's kind of this shame around even talking about them. Yes, yes, we don't talk about it. And my secret, not so secret agenda is this, it's like a lot of times, you know, whether we have diabetes or high blood pressure, or whatever the chronic illness is, we get blamed for it. You know, the doctor will say, well, you know, you might want to change your diet and drink more water and eat less fatty foods. Well, I don't eat fatty foods at all. And I eat quite a lot of fruits and vegetables. And so the problem isn't our diet or our lifestyle. The problem is racism. Racism is very stressful. We have inherited trauma. We're dealing with trauma and our medical needs are going ignored as a result. And if we can, if we can look at things like fibroids from, a, from um, a standpoint of this is a part of inherited trauma, then maybe um, we won't be so hard on ourselves and maybe we'll talk about it and maybe, you know, we will be able to comfort each other and advocate for our health in a better way. Yeah. And I think, I do think advocating for health is so important. This is something that I see from both sides of it, from both being a patient and also being a healthcare professional, is that a lot of, there's a lot of fear around that, for lack of a better word, power dynamic, right? You have a medical doctor or a person who um, knows stuff and has information and, you know, has all this jargon and secret language and whatever. And then you have, and, and this is me talking as a healthcare professional, I'm fully aware of what happens. And then you have patients who have fears around speaking up for themselves, around advocating for themselves. And that, that can make it very difficult, I think, for things also to get picked up early as well. So if you combine that with everything else that's going on, I think you, you then get to, as you said, the fact that it's picked up so much later, if it was picked up earlier, especially if you're saying that, you know, black women get fibroids when they're younger, this should be picked up when they're younger. I don't, you know, it should be screened for when you're younger so that you can deal with them when they're at a smaller size or whatever the case may be. So um, I definitely, I am on board with this agenda. Um, and I hope that this is something that we can do more research around and, and really look into from more of a, a preventive perspective rather than mm -hmm. a let's deal with this when it gets to the point where you're having a hysterectomy or some sort of more extreme form of, of intervention. So I definitely agree with that for sure. I just wanted to let you know how you can support us over here at Writing Black Joy. Firstly, you can join our Patreon community over at patreon.com slash Sophia Robinson. And you'll find the link for that in the show notes. When you sign up over at Patreon to support us, you will get the opportunity to join our monthly group coaching calls and workshops that we will be holding exclusively for Patreon supporters. So come on over and join the party. It's so much fun over there.
other ways you can support us, hit subscribe here on your podcast or over on the YouTube channel. You can also leave a podcast review, like our YouTube episodes, and share us with your friends. You can head over to our website and sign up for our mailing list, www.writingblackjoy.com. Also, follow Writing Black Joy over on Instagram at Writing Black Joy. All of these will be in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening and for supporting our show. One thing I want to know, and like I said, I mentioned this at the very beginning, I know that one of your missions is to look at transmuting the pain from the trauma into joy. I want to talk a bit about that. What, how do you think that's possible? Because I think, I feel almost sometimes like there's, there's the trauma, there's the pain, and there's the joy. And to get from one point to the, and to the next, is it, it can seem almost impossible. It can seem almost like, how can you change or transmute this sort of um, really deeply ingrained pain and trauma into a joyful experience, you know, not just for us, but for previous generations and for the next generation as well. So I'd love to, to know a bit more about what, your view on this. So um, I think it's, this is the part about the swimming that uh, I think that when we face our fears, when we, when we get into what our fears are and we realize that they, that they aren't so frightening um, that, and and that we can find something good in that. um, I really feel like that's when um, the, the magic happens. So um, my my belief is that um, because inherited trauma comes through the body, that in order to resolve it and find joy, it also has to come through the body. And mm-hmm. for me, that's swimming, because that's a fear that many of us have, as you stated earlier. So I feel like if I can learn to swim and find peace and joy in it, or at least find peace at some point. Mm-hmm. And I do have like moments of peace while I'm learning how to swim. And I did find joy in snorkeling. Then gradually that pain, that trauma, and even just being the, the ability to be able to overcome a fear is joyful. And if I can find that joy, then I can change the neurotransmitters in my DNA mm-hmm. and that I can replace a fear with something else i think so much of the the remnants of the trauma are fears for things that may not even be present right so this fear of the water coming from previous generations that fear is not something that's present for us right now because we are you know not in a position where we are being enslaved but that fear is still there and so as you said overcoming that fear um, and kind of addressing the stress that's in our bodies, the stress that's in our nervous system that comes with, with that fear, I can see how that would give you the ability to experience more joy and less, uh, less of that stress, uh, physical stress. So I love that. I love how you're using the physical act of swimming to, to really transmute into a joyful place. And it does get better. I think, you know, it's, it's hard when you're learning, you know, I know, I have a few friends who've learned to swim as adults. Um, and I think that it's, it's hard. Be- I almost feel like it's like learning how to drive because you have to think about so many different things at once. 
Um, and as you do it more, I, I feel that joy will come, that at least that peace will come in terms of um, how you are able to experience the water. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing <laughs> all about that uh, as you move on in that journey. Um, so one thing I'd like to know about your this project in particular, but you can also talk about the previous uh, project, Detroit Rising. What is something that you're really proud of? What's like one of your proud moments throughout this process? Oh, wow, there's a lot. Um, you can name a I few, think, that's fine. <laughs> I think coming to Mexico and being able to be here for the time that I have been, um, you know, as you know, moving to another country, um, and staying in another place for prolonged periods of time is never easy um, because of the culture or maybe the language or all of these different things. And even though I'm in paradise, um, paradise is not, you have to earn it. Um, it doesn't come easy. And um, so being able to endure has been and, and have a life and make a life for myself makes me proud being able to, to do this process. I mean, I wish that I filmed more than I actually do because I love the art of filmmaking, but I do a lot of paperwork. <laughs> so um, being able to have a, a grant from the Ford Foundation for $50,000 makes me enormously proud um, that they believe in my work and that are willing to put in some investment into it. I'm a first time director, and, um, and it's not easy. And there are a lot of times where I want to quit. So every day that I don't quit, I feel proud because uh, I made it through the day. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And what about, uh, you talked about the funding aspect of it. Um, I don't know if that, that in itself was an obstacle, but what other obstacles do you find that you face in the, the process of pulling this whole thing together? And you're still doing that at the moment. There are so many obstacles. Funding is the, pri the primary obstacle. Um, if anybody's watching this and wants to help me, um, you can give tax deductible donations um, through the Film Collaborative. Um, and you can get there by getting on my website, which is www.carabolton.com. And there's a donate button, mm -hmm. but- um, And I'll put that um, in the link as well. I'll put that link in the show notes as well. Um, but don't, um, but money, because, you know, I need money to pay my crew in order to do the research, in order to travel um, for the dive equipment. All of these things cost money mm -hmm. and um, trying to get people's attention. There are so many people making documentaries with the iPhone. The iPhone has actual cinematic properties, so you could film with your phone. And, um, and many people are telling personal documentaries. So like trying to get the attention of grant organizations and private investors um, is, is really hard. And then the other thing is um, finding the right people to surround yourself with, um, because you need to make sure that your team really believes in the project and believes in you and that they don't have this side agenda that they're trying to pursue. Mm. Um, that the hard way. <laughs> and um, so those are the main two obstacles I would say right now are money. And then, I mean, I haven't even gotten to the distribution process, which is no. its own beast. Mm. And right now, 
um, you know, companies are saying that they're looking for a certain thing. They're like, oh yes, we're interested in BIPOC voices. But what they really mean is like, if you are making a film about a very specific thing, whether it's um, police violence or a music documentary, like those are the, th or a documentary about a famous black person who happens to be a musician. Like those are the things that tend to get funded and, and, and distributed. Yeah. Whereas, you know, stories like mine, who knows? I mean, like, I'm hoping that by the time I finish that my film will be among the zeitgeist, but you never know. Yeah. And that is, that is a big obstacle because I think it takes so long to do it um, that you don't, you don't know what's going to be happening in, you know, two years time where however long it takes when it's completed. Exactly. So it's just kind of like making it in faith that when you get to that stage, the distribution channels will open up. So I really hope that is the case, but I'll definitely put the links for the contributions. Thanks. If anybody wants to donate, I'll have all the links um, on the show notes. And as I said, this is going to be on YouTube and the podcast. So just look for the show notes, look through the website and you will find things to donate because I think it's a really awesome project to get involved with so tell me what advice would you give to a budding filmmaker director somebody who uh, is interested in making a documentary or a film uh, let's see well there's a couple of things one I would tell them to have a regular meditation or prayer practice because you need to prepare your mind for the obstacles that are coming your way. Mm. Um, you know, it is, it is very difficult. And, uh, you know, there's only, there's about, I think I heard a statistic that only 70% of films, 70% um, of films don't get made. So mm -hmm. we have like 30% of films actually do get made and you wanna be in that 30% and it takes a, a special, I don't want to say mental toughness, but it takes some degree of flexibility and openness to be able to complete a film. So that's one thing. Um, and you need to have endurance. The second thing is to believe in your film more than anything else in the world, because as the director, you're the only, you're the one that has the vision. You're the one that's going to be working nights and weekends and late hours. Like everybody else is like, oh, well, I have my family to go to, so I can't get to this X, Y, Z task. So even if you do have a crew of people that you trust and you love, you're going to be the person who takes it across the finish line. And the best investment that you can make in yourself is to invest in yourself as a filmmaker, as whether it's learning skills, getting your mind right, self-care, physical fitness, whatever it is. Um, but it's definitely a marathon. Okay. I'm curious, how do you find balancing being the director and also the star, for lack of a better <laughs> word, of the film? Like, how do you find, how do you find that goes? Because I'm, I'm curious about that. Um, I have an on-off switch in my head. So, <laughs> so what I do is I prepare the hell out of everything. So before I know I'm going to do a shoot, um, I prepare the vision, I articulate it, I make sure everybody understands it. And then, and I tell people because the minute we start filming, I'm no longer the director or producer. I hmm. am the the protagonist of this film yeah. and I don't need to be worried about lighting and camera and all of that or whether we're going to have snacks so nobody passes out during the shooting like I'm done so um so the minute that camera goes on I'm in the scene 
And it helps wow. to usually in the scene, I'm learning something, I'm talking to somebody, um, I'm doing a task, and that keeps me not thinking about what's on, you know, that there's a film crew there. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm, I'm able to stay immersed in the present and what's going on. And it's not until after I see cuts of, you know, what we did that day that I know, oh, that thing happened. So that's how I, okay. that's how I do it. Wow, that's, um, that's very, I think that must require a lot of discipline as well, though, to just really keep yourself present when you are, as you said, the protagonist versus when you're in the preparation mode as a director. Um, I'm, I've got a couple more questions before we wrap up, but I just wanted to make sure that if there's anything else that you didn't get to talk about that you really want to mention, now is the time to do that. Okay, so we haven't talked about Water in My Bones, which is my book. Oh, yeah, and- let's talk about that. <laughs> Yeah. And so Water in My Bones was really the thing that started it. I didn't even think that this was going to be a film until 2019. Um, But I had started this book, I want to say maybe at the end of 2016, the start of 2017. And I could never sort of get the rhythm right. I thought that it was going to be about me moving to Mexico and learning how to swim and being an expat during the Trump years. And then... um, the story has just changed as, as my life has changed. And um, I've decided to write the book to my unborn daughter. Um, I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, because of the fibroids, I've had to have a hysterectomy and I always wanted to have a little girl. And so um, the book is sort of like a series of letters to her and um, about fibroids, about this journey, about what it's like at this particular time um, to be a Black woman who was spent time in the United States and now is, has a broader vision of the world. Um, and I'm really excited about that book. So I'm hoping that the book and the film will come out around the same time. Who knows? Oh, yeah, I really hope so. And I'm curious, when did you come up with the name? Because it sounds as if the 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 content of the book has changed as you have been writing over the last few years? Um, the, the name always came instantly because, wow. you know, we do have water in our bones. Our bodies are mostly made up of water. And, and I believe that our bones and our DNA tells a story. And so that's how that name came through. Oh, I love it. I really, I really am looking forward to that as well. Um, so probably <laughs> nearer to the time, I guess we don't know what that time will be, but um, if I'm still running this series close to the time, we'll have to have you back to talk a bit more about that, um, that book and the film by then it will be, you know, ready to, to be distributed. Yes, I hope so. So yeah. I'm looking forward to that. What type of thing do you enjoy watching or reading or listening to? given that you love, love your sort of narrative nonfiction uh, yes. in terms of writing and filmmaking, what do you like to watch and, and listen to? So uh, I am a huge fan of RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I watched that on repeat. And so the irony was not lost on me that, you know, I'm recovering from a hysterectomy and I'm watching men perform as women. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, but I am hooked on RuPaul's Drag Race. And um, so that's the thing that I watch on repeat. Um, I love historical dramas. Um, In terms of reading, I love biographies um, Mm. of historical figures, um, especially royalty, like I mean, Catherine the Great, Elizabeth I was the first historical figure I've ever fallen in love with. 
Um, so, and then um, the more literary side of me, uh, I try to read one book by Toni Morrison each year so I can remember what language is supposed to sound like. Yeah, um, she's a beautiful writer. Yes, because she's so amazing and I love her. And um, sorry, there's noise going on. Um, and so that's, so that's what I generally read and watch. Okay. And I watch personal documentaries as well. Okay, that's fine. And how do you find, because I always, like I write fiction and nonfiction. If I'm writing fiction, I don't like to read fiction because I, <laughs> I worry about getting influenced. So I don't yes, know if that happens to you as well. But I feel like when I'm really in like deep in writing mode of, of fiction, I'll read nonfiction and sort of vice versa. So I know a lot of people have said that as well. So last but certainly not least, where can we find you? I know you mentioned your website earlier, so we're going to definitely drop links to that. Is there a social media that you have for people to follow or like where can we find you and kind of like follow your journey? Because I think one of the things that I know you talked earlier about distribution and obviously you have your book as well, but I, I always encourage writers to be telling their story as they're writing if possible because that just helps, you know, to people get excited and when the book is out or the film or whatever is out there ready to kind of watch it. So where can people follow you and share, you know, about your work? So um, actually I'm trying to build my Instagram following. So if uh, Instagram and it's Tara Bolton, K-E-R-R-A-B-O-L-T-O-N. Um, if you want to specifically know about the movie, um, the Return of the Black Madonna is also has an Instagram account. So that's probably the best place to find me. I'm trying to um, beef up my blog, which is just my name, karabolton.com. Um, I do a lot on Facebook, but I'm really discriminating about new people <laughs> that I accept, and accept their stuff in the world. So I'm trying to uh, trans take some of my Facebook posts and put it on my blog. So I would say Instagram is definitely the place to find me. Instagram and your blog. Do you have a mailing list so that people can sign up onto it? I am. Yes, I do have a mailing list. I haven't sent anything out in a while. So, um, but I definitely will have updates. Okay, great. So go to Kara's blog. I'm a, I'm a blogger. So I, I am a big <laughs> proponent of blogs. So go to Kara's blog, jump on her mailing list, follow her on Instagram, learn more about these projects. I really appreciate you coming today and chatting to us all about your projects and about that all important skill that I think we all need of being able to transmute our pain and our trauma into joy um, and your passion of Black Joy. I love that. I'm so glad I can bring it to my audience and hopefully we can share this, you know, and make it wider than we ever could alone. So Thanks for joining me. Uh, and yeah, like I said, I'll, I'll hopefully have you on again a little bit closer to the time when you're ready to have everything out into the world. Thank so, you so much. No problem at all. Thanks, Kara. Bye, everyone. Happy reading, happy watching, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us today. You can find out more about our guests in the notes below. And don't forget to hit subscribe to subscribe to our channel so that you don't miss new episodes when they drop. And if this has inspired you to get your own writing project into the world, click on my website below and learn how you can work with me as a writing coach or an editor. Until next time, I send you big love from a small island.